Hello and welcome to Resident Advisors Exchange, a series of conversations with the artists, labels and promoters who are shaping the electronic music landscape. My name's Ryan Keeling and I'm the editor at Resident Advisor. As Europe's largest performing arts centre, the Barbican is a hub for outstanding works in music, theatre, dance, film and art. The centre was founded in 1982 using funds from the City of London Corporation and became famous for both its cultural significance and the building's brutalist architecture style, which is still dividing opinion to this day. The centre curates a far-reaching classical contemporary music programme that frequently includes major electronic music acts. One such event was recently steeped in controversy when the police cancelled a Just Jam event that was scheduled to feature artists like Big Nasty and JME evoking a time in London when grime events were subject to intense police scrutiny. As the Barbican's contemporary music planner since 2008, Chris Sharp plays an integral role in shaping the centre's music programme and is well placed to give an insight into the inner workings of the world-renowned centre. He sat down with RA's Kristen McElwain in London recently to discuss the past, present and future of the Barbican. Barbican. Could you describe the space and what it does? Sure. Well, the easiest way to describe it would be to say that it's an art centre and it's relatively unusual in that it has lots of art forms all as part of the same organisation. So we have two art galleries and two theatres and three cinemas as well as our concert hall and music programme and our various other things that happen, you know, learning programmes and outreach work and all that sort of stuff. So it's a, it's a multi-arts venue in London, in the city of London, and it's actually one of the largest of its kind in Europe, I think I'm right in saying. And a big, brutalist structure. Yeah, and it's made so, out of concrete. Yeah, yeah. that is one of, the, <laughs> one of the key things. It's, it's one of those things that really divides opinion. And I guess fashion changes as well around it. It's all made out of concrete. And it was made out of concrete in an incredibly painstakingly designed and discussed way over a very, very long period of time. And the, the sort of short history is that the Barbican was built on a chunk of land that was destroyed in the Blitz in the Second World War in the western part of the square mile, the city of London. And there was just a big pile of rubble there. And the city had to decide what to do to, to rebuild that space. And they conceived this idea of a slightly, I mean, this is the kind of thing that was around in, the, in that period of the 50s and 60s. There was this kind of utopian dream at the Barbican Centre and the surrounding Barbican Estate would represent a kind of new kind of living where creative activity and residential stuff and commercial stuff would all be kind of coexist alongside one another, interact in a kind of very new contemporary space. And they designed it initially and notoriously with these kind of high walks. So 
in fact, it's a totally pedestrianized sort of zone. Initially, there wasn't even a kind of street level entrance at all. You know, you had to kind of find your way in up staircases and mysterious ramps and escalators. And then the idea they thought would they would completely separate the whole estate off from the traffic and noise of the exterior around it. And so people would just go around on these high walks, literally kind of, you know, 20, 30 meters in the air, connecting all these spaces together. And it was a kind of modernist utopian vision. And in some ways, it's kind of the most complete expression of a modernist utopian vision that there is. And so as a result of that, we constantly have kind of architecture students and enthusiasts kind of every time I look out of my window, literally there is somebody snapping a photograph of the towers or whatever. Mm-hmm. But equally, obviously, some of the ideals that were kind of embodied in the design of the building and the whole estate have kind of seem to be somewhat misguided as time has gone by. So we have got small concessions to kind of relative practicality, like we do have a front door nowadays and things like that. Yeah. <laughs> and then within all of these different disciplines, what is your part? Okay, so my title is a contemporary music programmer, and I sometimes have difficulty in explaining that programmer does not mean that I'm sitting down in front of logic or reason, kind of messing around with software. Uh it means I I curate the contemporary music program at the Barbican, which broadly speaking, in a commercial context, you'd describe as a promoter, I guess, rather than a programmer. I choose the artists that come into the concert hall and into the other activity that we produce. And, you know, quite often a lot of that work is based around coming up with new ideas or new collaborations, new commissions, new, new, a lot of the emphasis that we have is on kind of new work. So it's stuff that you probably can't see because it's on tour. Not always, some things tour and they come and they play the barbican, but quite a lot of the stuff we do is not really just about presenting somebody because they've got a new record out. It's about coming up with a, a new collaboration or a new concept, which we will then enable because we have the resources as a public funded organization to to pay for things that just wouldn't happen if you had to make them work com- commercially. Mm-hmm. So as part of that role, I have to also interact with what my colleagues in the other art forms are doing. And this is what kind of makes the Barbican quite an interesting place and quite unusual internationally is because we do kind of actively try to identify moments when you can amplify what one art form is doing by presenting something relevant or contextual in another art form. So, so for example, if the art gallery is doing an exhibition about Marcel Duchamp and about his influence on American figures like John Cage and Merce Cunningham, I can respond to that by making some John Cage music happen in the art gallery. Or my colleagues in theatre might respond by presenting some Merce Cunningham dance pieces in the theatre. Or my colleagues in the cinema might respond by presenting a documentary about Buckminster Fuller or whatever. You know, So there's, there's all kinds of ways that we as a centre can create kind of little moments around art and culture that by working together that other places just can't do because they don't have the all the, the art forms in the same place. And um, has that always been from the beginning? It's been a forward-facing center from when it started, but musically, has yeah. this kind of been a new thing to where when you took over, this has been um, more in kind of like full form? 
No, I, I don't think so. I think what's happened is that obviously I have been able to kind of go where my own personal interests take me. But I think a lot of those kind of impulses and those ways of programming are kind of baked into what the Barbican does and how it thinks. And luckily that kind of fits in quite nicely with the way I think about a lot of things. So maybe some of the content is different because uh, it's me doing it. But I think quite a lot of the ethos has been quite similar for a long time. You know, it's take you know, Barbican, it sounds ludicrous to say it's 30, it's 32 years, I think, since it opened, 1982 or 83, something like that. And so, you know, in many terms, that's like a long time. But obviously, compared to kind of some arts institutions, it's actually relatively young and it took a while for it to kind of establish its identity. But I think for the last sort of 15 or 20 years, you know, that that has been the value, the values behind the Barbican. So in an interview on the Barbican site, you were asked to describe the center in five words. Oh, did I? <laughs> and uh, you came up with slightly insane ideas made reality. What are some of your um, favorite so, examples of this? so flip, wasn't it? What a ridiculous <laughs> thing to say. I don't know what I was thinking about when I said that, but I mean, a lot of the things that we we do are inherently quite challenging and involve quite a lot of planning and and resources, you know, money and time. And I think we're very lucky that we have those resources to make those sorts of things happen. So, you know, I can point at something like the project that I did with Aphex Twin a couple of years ago, where amongst many ridiculous things during the course of an evening of, of Aphex Twin shenanigans, um, we suspended a grand piano from the ceiling of the concert hall and swung it bodily from side to side for a piece of music that had a duration of about eight minutes, but which Richard really wanted to do. And the process to do that it was literally ludicrous. It took us months to work out how to do that. And, but we, we enjoyed it, <laughs> not just the outcome, but the process as well. And I think we're very, I'm very lucky in that I have a team, you know, the, the team who deliver the, the work in the concert hall, the technical team and the stage team and stuff like that are generally up for this kind of stuff. They, you know, I mean, I, certain places, the, the culture is very much like, oh, we can't do that. No, that's bloody ridiculous. What do you want to do that for? We're, we're lucky in that we have people who say, oh, I don't know, I'll look into it. And I've got a project that I'm developing now for, for the autumn, which I probably can't say much about because it's not confirmed and it might not happen. But if it does happen, it's going to involve possibly even more kind of intervention in the space. We're probably going to have to string uh, netting from side to side to protect the audience from things that might potentially fall out of the sky and things like that. So, you know, most organizations would look at a project like that and just say, no way. But we kind of try and do it if we think it's a good idea. And so working with people like Aphex Twin and then, you know, doing something like the Nunsuch takeover, what from your background feeds into your body of knowledge that covers you know, this kind of wide breadth of programming that you yeah, have to do. I mean, I guess nowadays it's not as unusual for people to be interested in lots of different kinds of music. I think kind of the nature of kind of online culture and the easiness, ease of access to, to music means that for people who are a younger generation, it's kind of almost second nature to just explore voraciously around different kinds of music. And but when I was younger, that was very difficult to do because you just, you know, if you wanted to hear records, you had to buy them. That was just what you did, you know. And I used to spend all my time as a teenager going around the record shops in Manchester, kind of hoovering up stuff. And I always personally liked modern classical music, in a, you know, and at the same time, and I could hear similarities between stuff like Stravinsky and Bartok and Stockhausen 
I could hear connections to the stuff that I really loved at the time, like Sonic Youth or um, Neubauten and all those kind of experimental kind of rock bands of that period. And definitely when kind of electronic music started to kind of come in through through the clubs and then gradually become more about kind of listening at home as well, I could really make connections between, you know, stuff that I'd heard that came out of the kind of academic classical electronic music tradition and how that connected to, you know, club music and post-club music. And for me, I never ever had a kind of distinction in my personal preferences. You know, I would really happily go from listening to Killdozer to listening to Model 500 to listening to, you know, Prokofiev or whatever. It, for me, there was just, it didn't seem natural to have barriers between those things. And and I'm very lucky in the Barbican, we kind of, you know, I, I can put together a program that does cross all those kind of genre distinctions and i'm just as comfortable talking to somebody like richard about crazy ideas that he might want to do as i am talking to an orchestra or a conductor about how we might do some conducted you know contemporary classical piece of music and i guess i'm just lucky that <laughs> the, the the venue and the program kind of fits with my range of interests is there any friction ever with you know certain committees of the barbican that want to maybe stay within more electronic programming that's you know, the Stockhausen actually rooted in experimental composition in an academic way. It sounds like a ridiculous thing to say, but I have almost complete freedom. The only thing that stops me from saying complete freedom is that I have a budget that I have to work to. Really, there is n there's never been any attempt in the whole time that I've been there and all the many, many shows that I've done where somebody said, oh, no, I don't know if we like the idea of that. What are we doing that for? I think that there's a recognition that across all the art forms, the programmers are what makes the, the place work and that the people who are higher up let us get on with it, you know. Obviously, there may be occasions when we make mistakes. We might program something that doesn't sell or that actually isn't very good. But there's never a problem, really, with doing something that isn't very good because we're encouraged. It's actually in our, it's almost in our job descriptions collectively that we should take risks. And you don't make new and interesting things happen unless you take risks. And I also think that it's interesting that, that I do have a, a colleague called Paul Keane, who's our classical programmer, and he and I kind of share the same you know we sit on the same desk not literally the same desk but you know the same part of the room and 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 we talk about stuff together quite often and paul is a total classical head and you know i totally bow to his far superior knowledge on that world the mind paul's just presented quite interestingly a huge huge opera by harrison Burtwistle, the he's 80 british super hardcore modernist composer you know i mean it's i struggle myself personally to get a great deal out of his music but there is a certain kind of strand of kind of pointy-headed kind of new music fans who absolutely worship that kind of that strand of modernism but I think the thing that the thing that seems to me clear and I think Paul would say the same thing is that that is kind of a dying you know it's not without merit in lots of ways but in terms of audience and in terms of relevance, it's just kind of diminishing. So why would you stick to just always presenting those things from the classical canon when there are things out there happening now? Like for instance, last night I did a show with Tyron Di Braxton, the guy who used to be in Battles and who is also a trained composer and he has this project called Hive that I did in a space called Oval Space in London last night. And um, you know, Paul bless him, <laughs> came away from the Gawain thing. Uh, actually, there was another Harrison Burtwistle performance, I think, called Jan Tan Tether that Paul had watched earlier in the evening. Then he came to watch Hive afterwards. And we were talking afterwards and he was like, well, this is clearly so much more vital and interesting. And in its own way, 
just as challenging because it's not easy music. It's not, you know, the music that Town Dice making is, you know, does make you ask questions. It's not just straightforward kind of banging four four exciting electronic music. It's it, it ha- delivers some of that, but it delivers a lot of textural surprise and a lot of crazy stuff alongside all of that. And I think Paul and I would be unanimous in saying, well, you know what? Why concentrate on people who were innovating 50 or 60 years ago? Let's concentrate on the people who are innovating now and see if we can develop an audience for them. Well, that takes me to my next question about the Just Jam Mm -hmm. show, which for those that don't know, Just Jam, do you want to explain what they are? Uh, What is Just Jam? Just Jam is... uh, just Jam is these guys, Tim and Barry, who are fab- fabulous and not very far away from where we are sitting in Ridley Road in Dalston. And they, um, they're photographers and video makers really by trade, but who happen over the years to have kind of developed an amazing network of relationships with, with kind of underground dance music makers and producers of all kinds who curate an online regular webcast called Just Jam, which I urge you to go and check out if you haven't seen it. There's hundreds of them archived on their website. Um, Many, many amazing people, some, you know, very familiar names, some kind of emerging names. I was down there for a session a few weeks ago where they had Kieran Hebden and Dan, formerly Caribou, now Daphne or whatever he calls yeah. himself, and um, Pearson Sound, Pearson Sound did that one as well. Yeah, and then they might do something that was much more kind of you know club oriented. They might do something with I don't know Scream, or they might do something. I mean, you know, they've done loads of really interesting people from all kinds of zones of music. And they, I was int- it's a long story, but I was introduced to them, and they uh, they said we'd really love to do a kind of big production number around Just Jam. You know, get live the live video, all different kinds of music, really mix it up, make it exciting, make it accessible. And I started actually talking to the team who do all our sort of creative learning work. So there's a whole branch within the Barbican who does a lot of work in all kinds of zones around East London where we kind of help what they call the music hubs, which are the sort of council forums for for teaching music to people who are interested in it to present those students with kind of additional experiences beyond what their kind of standard curriculum would give them. And we cooked up a plan for Just Jam where we would make it the centerpiece of a big weekend celebrating lots of creative learning activity. We'd get, we had a tagline which was self-expression through digital culture and Just Jam was going to be this kind of centerpiece show back in March that was at the heart of this weekend where there was all kinds of other activity. And as part of it, Tim and Barry did a lot of workshops in the run-up to it. They did courses for young people on production, video production, music production, photography in a place called Fellows Court, which is on Hackney Road, which is, you know, kind of, you know, slightly an estate with a slightly unusual, unsavory reputation, whatever you want to call it. But they had an amazingly positive and exciting time down there with the young people teaching them all kinds of stuff. And they brought a lot of that stuff into what was going to be Just Jam, the the live music concert at the Barbican and Barbican Hall. And it was a project that took just like a long old time to kind of conceive and discuss and budget and whatever. I had loads of great artists who were going to be on the bill from a really wide spectrum spectrum of stuff from sort of Mount Kimby and Sophie or whatever, people like that at one end of the spectrum. People like Omar Suleiman was going to play live. We had um, we had RP Boo was coming. I, you know, I can't even remember. I think we had Mar Fox, you know, we had we had, had all, I mean, it was a really interesting mix of people. And then we had people like New and Generals and Big Nasty and we had hula hoop dancers, you know, we had all kinds of stuff. It was going to be like a crazy mix of different things and this show was going to be on March the 1st and then I got a phone call about five days beforehand from somebody in the City of London police who said that they had some concerns about the show 
So I hastily convened some meetings with the police and with all the team who run our, what we call customer experience, which is the people who run the hosts and the stewarding and the security and all that kind of stuff. We had loads of meetings and discussions with the police, but really to no avail because effectively what happened, and I need to choose my word somewhat carefully, is that we were, we were told that the police had serious concerns about the event and that they advised us in the strongest possible of terms not to go ahead with it. And there's a slight, this is where it gets slightly political, but this was the City of London Police Force who actually are part of the same big organisation as the Barbican because the Barbican is owned, run, managed and funded by the City of London Corporation and the City of London Police Force is owned, run, funded and managed by the City of London Corporation. So effectively it was a kind of, whereas a, an independent promoter might be able to turn around and say, well, I don't believe there's any cause for concern and I'm going to go ahead with this event. We were in a scenario where effectively we were two departments in the same organization. It would have been insane, impossible politically to kind of challenge them really. So, so we had to cancel the event. And as many people will be aware, there was not unsurprisingly, in my view, a fairly strong reaction <laughs> to this news across social media. This isn't um, the first time that things like this have happened for this kind of program. But it is the first time that it's happened to us. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, I can't even tell you how surprised I was to even hear from the police in the in the many, many, many concerts that I've done, the police have never displayed any interest in any concert, you know, no matter what it was, they just didn't engage with it. So I do not know. I do not know what it was that piqued their interest. I don't know what it was that caused them to give us the advice that they gave us because they didn't tell us. But what I do know is that it was basically impossible for us to do the show. So we didn't. And that was very disappointing, not least because we'd put a lot of work into it. And obviously Tim and Barry were very upset and they wanted to know more information than I was able to give them about what the problem was. And it was just a very depressing few days. Um, The only good thing about it was that because we had contracted all the artists and we'd agreed to pay them and most of them who were traveling had their plane tickets and their hotels and everything all sorted out, Tim Bray actually went ahead and did a kind of very, very last minute version of the show in Brick Lane in the brewery, Truman Brewery down there. And so they did actually do a webcast, which you can see on their website for, you know, kind of just jam, not at the Barbican, but it was a kind of, um, I mean, nobody felt that that was, they obviously took the opportunity, the artists were there, they, they might as well do something, but but it wasn't what it was supposed to be. So yeah, that was a disappointing sequence of events. And I guess the only positive thing that I can say now is that we have had subsequent discussions with the police where we have been able to give them up to a fairly high level in terms of the seniority within the police. We've been able to give them a kind of much more rounded, bigger picture explanation about why we were doing this event, why we wanted to attract, why we wanted to put on an event that would attract a new audience to the Barbican, why we felt that it was important that the Barbican did attract new audiences. And we have been given how can I put it? The police have indicated that they would be cooperative if we tried to do it again. I don't know how that's going to work in practice because I need to find the money to do it again because cancelling the show did cost us quite a lot of money because, of course, we had to refund all the tickets, but we still had to pay all the artists. But nonetheless, I'm hopeful that we will find a way to make this happen at some point in the future. So this doesn't discourage you to push the boundaries of what the Barbican can cover? Well, it was a pretty bruising experience. (laughs) (laughs) But I think things like that actually make you more determined and not less. 
So we'll see what happens. Mm-hmm. And in terms of the audience, you say bringing kind of new people to the center. What's kind of in your mind, who's kind of the ideal person to be in the seats or, the, you know, is it e- evenly dispersed across age or? I, I don't really think of it like that. What I think, how I think about it is this. I basically, my my conviction is that there is a, it's a really important part of of many people's emotional and cultural life that they get the opportunity to go into a place with really high production values where you can, with great sound, where you can sit and really focus on music. And I, ha- you know, I, you know, I've, I've done, you know, I've been clubbing many, many times. I've been to rock shows many, many times. I've been to, you know, back rooms of pubs. I've been, to, you know, I've seen live music in practically any, every space you can imagine, you know, and I, I love all of that and I love all of that energy, but I think there's something about a concert hall, the production values, the space, the experience that actually gives you a way to get closer to music in a way that you can't when there's distractions with people pushing back and forth to go to the bar or whatever else. And what I want to do is to, try and find a way where people come to experience, come to have that experience. Because I think a lot of people, and I think it's a real shame because I think we have a pretty inclusive program anyway, but I think to still to some people, particularly younger people, they kind of think, oh, this isn't the kind of place that I go to. And if you actually look at the audience metrics, you know, large numbers of people who come to my shows, even my more kind of you know, with younger artists or artists with, you know, you'd think younger audiences, still a lot of the audience are in the sort of 25 to 35 bracket rather than in the 16 to 25 bracket. And I'm not saying that people who are 16 to 25 should be sitting in the Barbican every week because clearly they shouldn't. They've got many, many other things that they could should be going out and doing and having fun doing. But I just want to find ways to give them an experience that they might think one day, oh, you know what, that was quite good. I'll, I'll, I'll try that again. Because, you know, the kind of formal concert hall spaces like the Barbican and the South Bank and others around the country and around the world, these places, you know, are not going to continue existing if there is not a new flow of people coming in to them to experience what they have to offer. So you just have to constantly be thinking about bringing new people in. And also, I just think it's very important that as a recipient of public money, you know, in the end, money that comes from taxpayers, we have to provide for a wide variety of people, you know, and clearly if you do something, when you, you know, I don't mean this in any way disrespectfully, but a classical music program is unfortunately in some ways always going to attract a particular kind of audience it's really important that the contemporary music program actually offers something different and attracts people in who who otherwise might not even think about coming here and that that i'm not really even i'm not referring to it could be all kinds of ways all multiple multiple kinds of audience so for example i've done quite a lot of work with arabic music and i like to see audiences from those parts of the world coming in or heritage from that part of the world coming in you know i've done work with south asian music i like to see those people coming in i've done work with chinese music i like to see those people coming in you know it's not just about kind of east london people or whatever it's just about providing across the board quality experiences that they can relate to and so we were trying to provide a quality experience that that audience could relate to and it was disappointing that it didn't happen and it was disappointing that some of those people inevitably came away thinking well maybe we're not wanted after all and you know i want to do something to demonstrate to them that they are that you know since you are always thinking about pushing boundaries and the next thing in music. Mm. What do you think in a hundred years from now, the Barbican would kind of look like from the inside? What would be the contents within it? 
Um, would it be more electronic? Would it still be forward Who knows? A hundred years. Who knows? <laughs> I, I, I would love, I would love to be able to. The thing that would make my life easier would be to have a button that changed the shape of the space. <laughs> There's a friend of mine who works at a venue in in, in Amsterdam called Musikgebouw, which is a kind of contemporary music space, but it's a really amazingly flexible space. The seats can go in, the seats come out, the stage can move, the lighting can move, the PA can move. It's really, a you know, it's a very, very modern building. It's only been open a few years and it has this kind of unbelievable flexibility. So he can go, Shane, who's one of the programmers there, can go from doing something that is like a really kind of conventional, classical, chamber classical ensemble type performance to an out and out rave, you know, overnight can totally change the shape and the feel of the venue. And that is what I would love. You know, the thing is in the bargain, all the seats don't come out. They're made out of concrete. They're built into the ground. There's no way those, those seats do not move. <laughs> so our shows are inevitably seated shows. The other thing is the size of the place. It's, it's just under 2000 capacity, 1,898. And obviously that means that there are all kinds of artists that I hear and I'm excited by kind of emerging artists who you can't present because they're not going to draw an audience of that size. There are things you can do to work around that. You can come up with kind of programs that present them in a context. You know, there's all kinds of things you can do to try and get emerging artists in and we do, but equally there's kind of, you've always got to be aware that, you know, you've got to get a thousand people in there for it to feel all right. And that limits certain things that you might otherwise want to do. So in a hundred years time, what I would like, please, um, if you're listening, whoever makes these decisions is I would like a, a flexible space, a space that enables you to expand or contract the size according to the project and have your seats come and go and stuff like that. That would be good. Thank you, Phil.